Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. This episode is our audio companion to PwC's quarter close publication, which rounds up topics to be aware of as you close your books for the quarter. And for another quarter end resource, don't forget to tune in to the final episode of our quarterly webcast, which will air on September 29th. You can register for the webcast by heading on over to viewpoint.pwc.com. With that, I'd like to introduce your narrators, PwC partner, Angela Ferguson, and PwC managing director, Mark Jerusalem, back this month to take you through the quarter close. Angela and Mark are both from our national office. And now I'll turn it over to Angela and Mark. In the third quarter of 2022, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law, billed as the largest climate legislation in U.S. history. In addition to extending and creating numerous tax credits and incentives, the legislation enacts a new corporate alternative minimum tax and an excise tax on stock buybacks. We take a closer look at the provisions with potential financial reporting implications. Additionally, you'll want to make note of the SEC's recently finalized rules on executive compensation disclosures that may impact your next proxy. Many companies are thinking about goodwill impairment testing, either in connection with their annual test or triggered by current economic conditions. In Ask the National Office, we provide timely reminders on impairment testing, including how rising costs and interest rates could have an impact. On the regulatory front, we provide updates on ESG reporting proposals and highlight steps you should take now to prepare for climate reporting. In standard setting updates, we summarize the FASB's activities this quarter, including the latest on the segment reporting project. In this edition of the quarter close, we highlight these and other relevant accounting and reporting topics you should consider as you close out the third quarter of 2022. In this first section of the quarter close, we discuss some of the accounting and reporting hot topics from the third quarter of 2022, starting with the Inflation Reduction Act what you need to know for your financial reporting. On August 16th, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, or the IRA, into law, which includes a wide range of tax, clean energy, and healthcare-related provisions. Key aspects of the IRA with potential accounting implications include a new corporate alternative minimum tax, an excise tax on stock buybacks, and significant incentives for energy and climate initiatives. Under U.S. GAAP, changes in income tax rates and law are accounted for in the period of enactment. For U.S. federal purposes, this is the date the president signs the bill into law, although the majority of the provisions in the IRA will only impact financial statements prospectively. Let's discuss some key features of the Act, starting with the Corporate Alternative Minimum Tax. For tax years beginning after December 31, 2022, the IRA creates a 15% Corporate Alternative Minimum Tax, or CAMT, on corporations with average annual adjusted financial statement income over a three-year period in excess of $1 billion. 
There are special rules for companies with a non-U.S. parent that include an additional test to determine whether the company is subject to the CAMT. Companies that pay the tax will receive a non-expiring tax credit carry-forward that can be claimed against regular tax in future years. ASC 740, Income Taxes, requires deferred taxes to be measured using the regular tax rate, even if a company anticipates being subject to the CAMT in the future. However, companies that expect to pay CAMT for the foreseeable future may need to reassess their valuation allowances in the period that includes the enactment date, since certain existing deferred tax assets may no longer provide a future benefit under the CAMT regime. Next, we'll discuss the excise tax. The IRA imposes a non-deductible 1% excise tax on a publicly traded corporation for the value of certain stock that it repurchases net of issuances, effective for repurchases after December 31, 2022. Because the excise tax is levied on a gross amount, its effects are not expected to be included in the income tax provision under ASC 740. We believe that it would be acceptable to consider the excise tax as a direct and incremental cost that is associated with the transaction that created it. Under U.S. GAAP, many stock repurchases are accounted for as equity transactions with no income statement consequence. Although certain equity transactions may have income statement consequences and not all shares of stock are classified as equity instruments. As a result, the accounting treatment for a stock buyback transaction may be relevant in determining the appropriate accounting for the excise tax. Next, we'll discuss the Act's Climate and Clean Energy Initiatives. The IRA includes significant extensions, expansions, and enhancements of numerous energy-related tax credits and also creates new credits. Certain of the credits have a direct pay election, which allows an eligible taxpayer to receive a current benefit from the credit without taxable income or a tax liability, while others provide for an election to transfer, i.e. sell, certain credits to another taxpayer. The application of ASC 740 is warranted if a credit can only be claimed on the tax return and realized through the existence of taxable income. When a company is able to receive the benefit of a credit, regardless of whether it has income taxes payable or taxable income, we believe the benefit should be accounted for outside of the income tax model. This would apply to credits with a direct pay option. For credits with transferability provisions, if the company does not intend to transfer the credit and will only realize its benefit by reducing income tax payable, it would account for the benefit of the credit as part of its income tax provision determined under ASC 740. However, if the company intends to realize the benefit of the credit by transferring it to another party, it should account for the credit outside of the income tax line. Companies will need to determine the appropriate accounting framework to apply to these credits, which may be akin to a government grant. For more information on the Inflation Reduction Act, read our in-depth Accounting for the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act, and listen to our podcast, ESG Incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act. The next hot topic we'll cover this quarter 
is the SEC's adoption of pay versus performance disclosure rules. On August 25th, the SEC adopted final rules that require enhanced disclosures related to executive compensation and proxy and information statements for many registrants, as mandated by the Todd Frank Act. For impacted calendar year-end registrants, the new rules will require incremental disclosures and proxy statements for 2022. The rules amend Item 402 of Regulation SK and apply to all registrants other than foreign private issuers, registered investment companies, and emerging growth companies. Under the new rules, registrants will be required to provide incremental disclosures that depict the relationship between executive compensation actually paid and the financial performance of the registrant. Smaller reporting companies, or SRCs, will be permitted to provide scaled disclosures. Here we provide a summary of the new disclosures. In a new table, registrants subject to the rules will need to disclose total compensation for the principal executive officer, or PEO, and the average for the other named officers, or NEOs, for the five most recent fiscal years. The table must include both the total compensation included in the summary compensation table, currently required under item 402, and executive compensation actually paid as defined in the rule. Further, the table must show the following measures of financial performance. Total shareholder return, or TSR, for the registrant. TSR for the registrant's peer group. The registrant's net income. A, quote, company-selected measure, end quote. A measure selected by and specific to the registrant that represents the most important financial performance measure used for the most recent fiscal year to link NEO compensation actually paid to company performance. In addition to the new table, registrants will be required to describe the relationship between A, the executive compensation actually paid to the PEO, and the average executive compensation actually paid to the other NEOs, and B, the financial performance measures as disclosed in the table. The discussion must also include a comparison of the TSR of the company to the peer group TSR. Registrants will also need to provide three to seven performance measures it determines are its most important financial performance measures used to link executive compensation to company performance during the most recent fiscal year, which may also include non-financial performance measures. SRCs are not required to disclose a peer group TSR, a company-selected measure, or financial performance measures. Additionally, SRCs are only required to provide disclosures for the three most recent fiscal years. Regarding effective date and transition, the new disclosures are required in proxy or information statements that include item 402 executive compensation disclosures for fiscal years ending on or after December 16, 2022. Three years of information is required in the initial year of adoption, with an additional year added in each of the two subsequent annual filings. SRCs may provide two years in the initial year of adoption, with a third year added in the subsequent year. For more information, listeners can find more details in our brief, SEC Adopts Pay versus Performance Disclosure Rules, linked at viewpoint.pwc.com. Next, we bring you Ask the National Office. In this section, we spotlight goodwill impairment tests with Jay Celeber, 
a partner in our national office. Angela will read the questions and I will read Jay's responses. Question one. As a company completes either its annual goodwill impairment test or an interim test due to a triggering event, what should it be thinking about in the current economic environment? The current economic landscape will largely impact companies' goodwill impairment testing in two ways. First, inflationary costs and supply chain disruptions could put pressure on future cash flows. Second, assuming all else stays equal, higher interest rates will result in lower present values. Both of these factors could impact fair value calculations. This differs from the last U.S. recession we saw in 2008, when interest rates remained relatively low. Additionally, companies performing their annual test may not be able to rely on a step zero qualitative assessment given current macroeconomic conditions. Question two. Any other reminders to pay attention to for the Goodwill Impairment Test? We tend to get questions on the deferred tax effects related to goodwill. Taxable business combinations can generate goodwill that is tax deductible. As that goodwill amortizes for tax purposes, a deferred tax liability is recognized. However, if an impairment charge is recognized for book goodwill, that could result in the recognition of a deferred tax asset if the impairment of goodwill for book purposes exceeds the cumulative amortization of goodwill for tax purposes. Since the initial amount of the calculated goodwill impairment reflected the difference between the fair value of the reporting unit and its carrying value, recording a deferred tax asset for the impaired goodwill will result in the carrying value of the reporting unit again exceeding its fair value. This results in the need for a further amount of goodwill impairment to be recorded in an iterative process. ASC 805 describes this approach as a simultaneous equation that is used to determine the appropriate amount of goodwill impairment to record. We discuss this further in section 9.9.6 of our business combination guide. Question 3. What about impairments of other long-lived assets? Impairments for most other long-lived assets that are held and used are addressed in ASC 360-10. This model is applied at the asset group level and uses an undiscounted cash flow approach for step one of the assessment. This could make the test easier to pass as compared to the goodwill impairment test. However, the same impact of inflation on future cash flows could impact these step one assessments. If the test is failed, the asset group is written down to fair value, which could be affected by higher interest rates. Additionally, Subsequent to the adoption of the new leasing standard, right-of-use assets recorded by lessees are included in the asset group and tested for impairment following this model. This may result in significantly higher asset group carrying values as compared to past economic downturns. Question 4. What other transactions may give rise to impairments? While normal changes in financial forecasts and results can create an impairment trigger, some business decisions could give rise to a triggering event. Transactions, such as decisions to restructure or sell off parts of the business, for example, may drive an impairment assessment since it may impact future cash flows of the remaining business or asset group. Additionally, decisions to exit or sublease assets subject to a lease could affect the composition of asset groups and trigger impairments of effective right-of-use assets. 
For more information on impairments of goodwill and asset groups, refer to Section 9.5 of our Business Combination Guide and Chapter 5 of our Property, Plant, Equipment, and Other Assets Guide. Both guides are linked at viewpoint.pwc.com. Next, we share some key reminders when assessing the realizability of deferred tax assets. The challenges of the current economic environment have put additional focus on the assessment of the realizability of deferred tax assets and the adequacy of the related valuation allowance, not only at year-end, but also during interim reporting periods. In some circumstances, this assessment can require significant judgment and a detailed analysis of the supporting evidence, so it's a topic to address early in the close process. We summarize some of the key considerations. First, we'll address evidence to consider in the analysis. When assessing the realizability of deferred tax assets, the income tax accounting standard requires consideration of four sources of future taxable income. Taxable income in prior carryback years, future reversals of existing taxable temporary differences, tax planning strategies, and projections of future taxable income. All available evidence, both positive and negative, must be considered including operating results and trends in recent years. Companies should assign the most weight to the evidence that can be objectively verified. This means that what has already occurred, and thus can be objectively verified, carries more weight than what may occur. For example, projections of future income are not typically objectively verifiable. Cumulative profitability or losses for the last three years is a significant factor when assessing the realizability of deferred tax assets. When considering historical results, it is often difficult to justify excluding items from prior periods under an assumption that they will be non-recurring, given that events that have already occurred are typically the most objectively verifiable. Additionally, the absence of cumulative losses does not automatically result in the presumption of the realizability of an entity's deferred tax assets. It may be necessary to schedule out the future expected reversals of deferred tax assets and liabilities if needed as support for realizability. This can be a complex exercise. Therefore, it is important not to leave this aspect of the analysis to the last minute. Other Considerations as a result of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the calculation used to determine the interest expense deduction limitation for tax years beginning after December 31, 2021, is defined similarly to EBIT, earnings before interest and taxes, instead of the previously used EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. The combination of this change and rising interest rates may result in larger deferred tax asset balances related to interest expense deduction carryforwards that will need to be assessed for realizability. Lastly, don't forget that subsequent events can also impact the analysis. Companies should carefully evaluate events that occur after the balance sheet date but before the financial statements are issued for any potential impact to their valuation allowance assessments. For more details, see Chapter 5 of our Income Taxes Guide and listen to our Tax Toolkit Valuation Allowances Weighing the Evidence podcast. These resources are linked at viewpoint.pwc.com. Next, 
will cover private company adoption of the new leases standard, which is in the home stretch. Most private companies will be required to adopt the new leases guidance in ASC 842 when they report their 2022 annual financial statements. Below, we highlight three critical areas for adoption as the reporting deadline nears. We'll start with completeness of the leases population. Lessees will be required to record virtually all leases on the balance sheet, so it is critical to ensure all leases have been identified. Leases can be embedded in many different kinds of contracts, including service contracts. Identifying embedded leases requires judgment and often involves detailed contract reviews and obtaining a thorough understanding of the terms and economics of arrangements that may contain a lease. The next area to consider is the adequacy of existing lease data. The considerable data requirements are another key challenge. Extensive data will be needed to calculate the right-of-use asset and lease liability and to comply with the significant new disclosure requirements. Adoption is also likely to require new or different processes and modifications to internal controls over the new data and disclosure requirements. Next, preparers should consider transition elections and policy choices. The new standard provides various transition-related expedients and policy elections that can ease the level of effort required to adopt the new guidance and simplify information needs. However, certain expedients and elections may also affect the amounts reported under the new standard. For example, if a lessee elects to combine lease and non-lease components, less effort is required because there is no need to allocate contract consideration. Lessees should keep in mind, however, that this election will increase the total lease liability recorded on the balance sheet, as well as the amounts classified as lease expense, prospectively. Therefore, elections should be carefully considered, weighing both the benefits and the potential financial reporting consequences, to ensure the elections will make sense not only at transition, but for the future. Lastly, it is important to clearly document judgments and accounting elections to set a solid foundation for transition and support your financial reporting on an ongoing basis. For more information, read our publication, Private Company ASC 842 Adoption, Key Considerations. Listen to our podcast, Leasing Toolkit, Tips and Tools for Private Company Adoption, and read our Leases Guide. These resources are linked at viewpoint.pwc.com. Next, we will cover regulatory developments in the third quarter of 2022. Up first, ESG reporting. What's next? The comment periods have now closed for the SEC's Climate Disclosures Proposal. The International Sustainability Standards Board, or ISSB, exposure drafts on general sustainability and climate disclosures, and the European Financial Reporting Advisory Group, or EFRAG, Exposure Drafts on Disclosures Impacting a Broad Range of Environmental, Social, and Governance Matters. Looking forward, we expect a final rule from the SEC as soon as the fourth quarter and final standards from the ISSB in early 2023. EFRAG is expected to submit its standards to the European Commission later this year, beginning a process that will be finalized in mid-2023. Companies that may be in the scope of one or more of these disclosures should not wait for the final rules. Practical considerations, such as identifying participants and leadership for a cross-functional team, and determining the scope, data requirements, and related gaps, are steps that can be started now. 
At a minimum, the following steps will help you hit the ground running when the final guidance is issued. Step one, determine scope and timing of reporting requirements. Step two, review existing disclosures, including those related to greenhouse gases, and assess the quality of the underlying data. Step three, map known climate activities and emissions to proposed disclosures, determine gaps, and create an action plan. Evaluating what actions you should be taking now begins with determining the applicable ESG disclosure frameworks, which will determine timing and what information is required. This may sound simple, but there can be complexities. SEC Climate Disclosure Proposal As currently proposed, the rules would be applicable to domestic registrants and foreign private issuers, with limited exceptions. Proposed disclosure requirements are expected to be effective on a phased basis dependent on filer status, with some requirements not applicable to certain companies. For example, GHG Scope 3 emissions would not be required for smaller reporting companies. The requirements may be applicable as early as 2023 for large accelerated filers. Read our In the Loop. The SEC wants me to disclose what? Linked at viewpoint.pwc.com for more details. EFRAG Exposure Drafts The scope of the CSRD includes U.S. and other non-EU parent companies with EU subsidiaries. In addition to subsidiary or EU-level reporting, some non-EU parent companies will need to report at the global consolidated level. The directive would apply to all companies listed on EU regulated markets and large, as defined in the directive, unlisted companies or groups in the EU. For some entities, disclosure and attestation requirements would be applicable as soon as 2024. Read our In the Loop, What's CSRD? You should already know. Linked at viewpoint.pwc.com for more details. ISSB Exposure Drafts Individual jurisdictions will have to decide whether to require or permit application of ISSB standards as a basis for sustainability reporting, akin to the process for adopting IFRS accounting standards for financial reporting. Although there is a lot of interest in the ISSB standards, it remains to be seen which jurisdictions will adopt them once finalized. Read our in-depth What You Need to Know About the ISSB Exposure Drafts, linked at viewpoint.pwc.com for more details. For a comparison of the Big Three Disclosure Proposals, read our In the Loop, Navigating the ESG Landscape, linked at viewpoint.pwc.com. The next regulatory development we'll cover is the SEC's and PCAOB's release of draft strategic plans. This quarter, both the SEC and PCAOB released their draft strategic plans for fiscal years 2022 to 2026 for public comment. The SEC's draft strategic plan includes three primary goals, protecting working families against fraud, manipulation, and misconduct, developing and implementing a robust regulatory framework that keeps pace with evolving markets, business models, and technologies, and supporting a skilled workforce that is diverse, equitable, inclusive, and is fully equipped to advance agency objectives. 
Among the initiatives to meet these goals, the SEC will seek to modernize design, delivery, and content of disclosures to investors so that they can access consistent, comparable, and material information while making investment decisions. The SEC refers to its efforts to enhance disclosures related to climate risks, cybersecurity, and human capital within this objective. Comments on the plan are due September 29th. The PCOB's draft strategic plan sets out four goals and related objectives to support the achievement of those goals. Modernize standards, enhance inspections, strengthen enforcement, and improve organizational effectiveness. Comments on the plan were due September 15th. Both strategic plans are linked within the quarter close document for Q3 2022 at viewpoint.pwc.com. Also in regulatory developments, new SEC commissioners were sworn into office. The SEC returned to a full slate of five commissioners this summer when Mark T. Ueda and Jaime Lazarga were sworn into office on June 30th and July 18th, respectively. Commissioner Ueda fills the position most recently held by Elad Roisman, who left the agency at the end of January, and his term expires in 2023. Commissioner Lazarga is taking over for departing Commissioner Allison Heron-Lee, who announced in March her intention not to seek a second term. Lazarga's term will expire in 2027. The next regulatory development we'll cover is the PCAOB's agreement related to inspections in China. On August 26th, the PCAOB announced it had signed a statement of protocol with the China Securities Regulatory Commission and the Ministry of Finance of the People's Republic of China. The agreement establishes a framework for the PCAOB to access the audit work papers, audit personnel, and other information needed to inspect registered public accounting firms in mainland China and Hong Kong. Under the U.S. Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, or HFCAA, if a position taken by an authority in a foreign jurisdiction prevents the PCAOB from inspecting and investigating completely a registered public accounting firm for three consecutive years, a company audited by that firm would be prohibited from trading on U.S. markets. The significance of this agreement in the context of the HFCAA will be borne out later this year, as the PCAOB is planning to have an inspections team in China by mid-September. According to PCAOB Chair Erica Y. Williams, quote, the real test will be whether the words agreed to on paper translate into complete access in practice, end quote. Next, we'll cover standard setting updates in the third quarter of 2022. Up first, a proposed ASU addresses accounting for investments in certain tax structures. On August 22nd, the FASB issued a proposed ASU reflecting the consensus for exposure reached by the EITF to expand the use of the proportional amortization method of accounting to investments in tax credit structures beyond low-income housing tax credits, if the arrangements meet certain criteria. The proportional amortization method results in the tax credit investment being amortized in proportion to the allocation of tax credits and other tax benefits in each period, and also results in net presentation within the income tax line item. Comments are due by October 6, 2022. Up next, the FASB votes to move forward with its segment reporting proposal. At its July 27th meeting, 
the FASB voted to issue a proposal that would amend the segment disclosure requirements. The proposal would add new disclosures of significant segment expenses that are both, one, regularly provided to the Chief Operating Decision Maker, or CODM, and two, included in the reported measure of segment profit or loss. Significant segment expense categories would include those that are easily computable from the management reports that are regularly provided to the CODM. The FASB also decided to require disclosure of the title and position of the CODM and to permit companies to report multiple measures of a segment's profit or loss. The disclosures would be required in both interim and annual periods and would also apply to companies with a single reportable segment. The proposal will have a 75-day comment period. Next, we have a spotlight on the FASB's project on modernizing guidance on software costs. The accounting for costs to acquire or develop software has become increasingly relevant across all industries as companies invest in technology and digital transformation. In June, the FASB added a project on software costs to its agenda, with a focus on modernizing the guidance and increasing transparency. In the current guidance, there are different accounting models for A, software used for internal use only, including software used to provide cloud-based services, and B, software externally marketed to customers. This can result in significant differences in financial reporting depending on the model that applies. Although the FASB has not yet made any decisions, some board members expressed interest in exploring an approach that would provide a single accounting model for all software costs. For more information, refer to the FASB's project page. To learn more about the current guidance, refer to our software cost guide and listen to our podcast, Buying or Developing New Software? Know Which Guidance to Use. These resources are linked at viewpoint.pwc.com. For a complete list of recently issued accounting standards and their effective dates, including links to PwC resources, refer to the Guidance Effective for Calendar Year-End Public Companies and Guidance Effective for Calendar Year-End Non-Public Companies pages on viewpoint.pwc.com. The next section is the PwC Reference Library. Refer to the print publication and show notes for a listing of reference materials, including podcasts, webcasts, and print publications that expand on the discussion in the quarter close. That does it for this quarter. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the companion online version of the quarter close, which can be found at viewpoint.pwc.com, along with other quarter end resources. Still hungry for more podcasts this week? Well, you're in luck because tomorrow you'll hear an ESG-focused episode that marks the occasion of the 25th anniversary of the Global Reporting Initiative, or GRI. You'll get to hear from a special guest about why voluntary reporting still matters to investors. So that you don't miss any of our episodes, follow the accounting podcast series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. 
PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.